Let's pray. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Give us now ears to hear your voice, hearts to believe, minds to understand, and wills to obey your truth. We ask all of this in the name of Jesus and for his sake. Amen. Our text this morning comes from the book of Exodus. I invite you to turn there in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 32, page 73 in the Pew Bibles. Exodus chapter 32 may seem like a strange passage for Easter. It may seem like maybe I've forgotten what Easter is about. I was listening to the radio this week and heard a a commercial come on for one of these anti-snoring devices. And it was clearly aimed for the holiday season and the two major holidays going on. And the voice said, look, if you want Elijah to come back, so that's Passover, and if you want the Easter bunny to visit you, then you better get this snoring device. Otherwise, you'll be keeping everyone up and they won't come back. And I thought, how come Passover gets Elijah and we get the Easter bunny? Does anyone know what Easter is about? And you may be thinking, Pastor, do you know what Easter is about after I read these verses? No, I am not under the illusion that this is one of the more common go-to passages for Easter. But before we're done, I hope you'll see that these verses have everything to do with the good news that we celebrate with the cross and the empty tomb this morning. Follow along as I read Exodus chapter 32, beginning at verse 25. And when Moses saw that the people had broken loose, for Aaron had let them break loose to the derision of their enemies, then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, Who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered around him. And he said to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Put your sword on your side, each of you, and go to and fro from the gate to gate throughout the camp, and each of you kill his brother and his companion and his neighbor. And the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses, and that day about 3,000 men of the people fell. And Moses said, Today you have been ordained for the service of the Lord, each one at the cost of his son and his brother, so that he might bestow a blessing upon you this day. The next day, Moses said to the people, you have sinned a great sin, and now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold. But now, if you will forgive their sin." But if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. The Lord said to Moses, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. But now go, lead the people to the place about which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. Then the Lord sent a plague on the people because they made the calf, the one that Aaron made. Many of us go through a phase when we're kids, and 
as a parent, I say sadly, it's just a phase. We go through a phase where you think that your parents can do everything. And uh, then you go through a phase where you think, my parents can do nothing. It's called teenager. And then suddenly you get to be a little bit older and they may not seem as dumb anymore. What's that famous line when when I was in my parents, when I was in my 20s, my parents knew nothing, and by the time I got to 30, they had suddenly learned so much again. But I thought for a season, you know, my dad seemed to just do everything. He, he, he could drive, and no matter where we were going, he would just drive and drive forever, and he was one of those dads. And now I'm one of those dads. He's just going to do all the driving, and no matter how tired he was, it seemed like he could get there, and he knew how to do stuff on computers. He was always an early adopter with technology and still knows more about technology and computers than I do. And he could uh, know how to get the lawnmower started. And he made enough money for our family. And he traveled around the world. And he was big and tall. And he could sing and pray in front of people. And it just seemed like he could do everything. Of course, later I realized he didn't know how to hunt or fish or fix cars or shoot a basketball very well. And it's amazing how many of those things then transfer to his children. And my mom, well, it just seemed like my mom how to, knew how to do everything that was really important for us kids. And she uh, went back to work when we were in school, but still it seemed like everything related to the home and to us children, she knew how to do. She knew how to make food and clean things and knew how to bandage our you know, injuries in just the right way and how to take us to the doctor and knew what to do to get us braces. And she stayed up late and saw her paying the bills. And it seemed like she never slept because she was up when we went to bed and she was awake when we got up. And now I've since learned that it's true. Mothers do never sleep. It's amazing. It looks like for all the world that Moses can't do anything. We were flipping through the channels last night, and just for a, a time, it went so late that we couldn't watch the whole thing, but you know, every time around this year, they reshow the, the Charlton Heston version of the Ten Commandments, and uh, it takes some liberties with it, of course, but you know, he comes out, and he, he just seems so in control, thus saith the Lord. I mean, he just seems, and he's sort of bronzed and tanned and little furry chest and everything, he just seems... <laughs> so impressive, and sometimes we have this sort of picture of Moses in our mind, and we'd be forgiven for thinking up to this point that Moses can do just about anything. He marches into the most powerful ruler in the earth, Pharaoh, and just says ten times over, let my people go. And then he leads the people and presents them through the Red Sea, and then he brings water from the rock, and he's able to go where no one else can go. He goes up on the mountain, no one else can go there, and he can meet face to face with God, and he intercedes for the people, and God listens to him, and he comes down, and he smashes the Ten Commandments, and then he grounds up the calf, and he makes them drink it all, and then he goes and he confronts his older brother Aaron and rebukes him. This is a man who seems, since his commissioning now, to be supremely in charge. What can Moses not do. In fact, Moses is even more impressive when you realize how much he resembles Christ. 
or to put it reverse, how much Christ, who is to come 1,500 years later, will come in the image and likeness of this prophet Moses. Have you thought about these many connections? Shortly after Jesus' birth, what happens? He's rushed away to a place of safety to avoid the wrath of a jealous king who had ordered all the young boys to be killed. Where does that happen? Well, it happens back in in Exodus chapter 1, not with Jesus, but with Moses. As you know, Pharaoh fears that the Hebrews are becoming too numerous, and so this jealous king orders that all the baby boys be thrown into the Nile. But Moses was spared because his mother hid him in a basket in the river, just as Jesus was spared Herod's decree because his mother and father hid him in Egypt. So their birth had these remarkable similarities. Jesus is given in in Matthew chapter 2 this prophetic word from Hosea, out of Egypt I have called my son. And of course, Israel would come out of Egypt and Moses would lead them out of Egypt. Moses, like Jesus, left behind a royal existence, dwelling in the throne room with all the privileges that life could offer, left all of that to identify with a people in bondage, and a people who would reject them as the deliverer. And following on the heels of Jesus' exodus out of Egypt, as we read in Matthew chapter 2, you know your Bible, you go to Matthew chapter 3, and we have Jesus being baptized in the Jordan River, passing through this body of water, just as Moses after he led the people out of Egypt, has to pass through this body of water, the Red Sea. And after the Red Sea, Moses leads the people in the wilderness. And he goes up on the mountain and spends 40 days and 40 nights with the Lord. Well, what then happens with Jesus? From Matthew 2 to Matthew 3, then to Matthew 4, after his baptism, Jesus is in the wilderness for how long? 40 days and 40 nights. And then Jesus goes up to a mountain in Matthew chapter 5 to embrace his role as the divine lawgiver as he gives that Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Just as Moses, after passing through the Red Sea, after 40 days and 40 nights, comes down as the divine lawgiver. Do you see how Moses is in all these respects like Christ? And clearly in Matthew's gospel in particular, Chapter 1, 2, 3, 4, 5. He is tracing the same history that we see with Moses, we then see in Christ. Moses is a type of Christ. Christ is presented as a new Moses. We are meant to see these remarkable similarities between the two. And up to this point in his life, the parallels between Moses and Christ are tracking in remarkably the same direction. But now we come to the crux of the matter, literally the crux of the matter. For all the ways Moses is like Christ, and for all the things that Moses can do for the people of God, here's what Moses cannot do. He cannot offer his life as an atonement for sin. You see that in our text, verse 32? He goes up the mountain again and he asks the Lord, if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of your book 
that you have written. Might he be an atonement for the sins of a guilty people? You know your New Testament, and you, you understand that Moses is so much like the Christ who is to come. But now we come to a point of greatest divergence. Here's the one thing that he cannot do. The golden calf was a deadly, serious sin. We've already seen the ways that in worshiping the golden calf, they broke the first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. They broke the second commandment, you shall have no graven images. They broke the third commandment, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. They likely broke the seventh commandment about sexual immorality, probably the tenth commandment about coveting. And if we had time, we could probably find a way they broke all the other commandments as well. We've seen how this sin represents a new kind of fall. God has here gathered a new people unto Himself, and He has issued forth a new law, just like He did with Adam in the garden. Here's this new kind of covenant, and just like Adam, now the people have fallen. And now we see again in our verses how offensive this sin was to God. You see in verse 30 and 31, it is called a great sin. They made gods of gold. That phrase is an absolute contradiction. You cannot have gods of gold, but that's what they tried to do. You read up in verse 25 that the people had broken loose. It's a unique phrase. Sometimes it's used in the Bible for people who let their their hair go loose or go wild. It's a people who have lost any semblance of control, people who've gone wild. They were out of control, and it says they did so in that par parenthetical statement in verse 25, to the derision of their enemies. What's the word derision mean? It, it means mockery, scorn, ridicule. Some translations say they had become a laughing stock. In other words, their enemies said to themselves, some holy people, quite a, a royal priesthood they got going on there in Israel. Never underestimate the power of a changed life to make even the skeptic sit up and notice. And never underestimate the power of hypocrisy to embolden the enemies of God. They looked on this people whom their God had redeemed and set free from Egypt with, with great power by His own strong hand. And now they see that they have let all boundaries go, a wild people, a loose people, and they begin to mock them to laugh at them, to think, what sort of people do we have here? They thought they were laughable. This was no formidable foe. They weren't scared to come against these people in battle. They've hardly been set free for a couple of months, and already they're just striking up the band and having a big old party. These were no mighty people from a mighty God. They were going buck wild and trashing the place just like any pagans would do underestimate how your life and mine has the power to make people say, I'm not sure if there really is a God, but I can't deny that something has happened in her life. 
I'm not sure about this whole Christianity. A lot of it, of it I don't like, but I can't deny that he came home from college and there was something really different about him. And don't underestimate what damage we can do if someone says, since they've been singing these Jesus songs, they look absolutely despicable. Or they make a big profession of their faith on Easter Sunday and know how to get dressed up, but I know what they're really like the rest of the week. And if that's their God, then no thanks. This was a national failure on the grandest scale. You see back in verse 3, so all the people took off the rings of gold. All the people. This is not something that just happened in a pocket here or there, but the whole nation came together and said, this is a good idea. We'll give you our gold. Let's make this calf, this God that we can worship. It was a deadly, serious sin. And it was a serious sin deserving severe punishment. We've already seen Moses respond to their sin. He came down and he broke the tablets. He scattered the, the ashes of the calf and made them drink it. He's confronted Aaron. And now, we've seen Moses' response, and now it's the Lord's turn to respond. He does throw, so through his messenger, Moses. And we have first this uh, somewhat disturbing episode, it seems to us, death by the Levites. Moses says in verse 27, put your sword on your side and go to and fro from gate to gate throughout the camp. That's the instruction he gives. But first, when he calls them, he do, they don't know what, what Moses is going to ask of them. He simply says in verse 26, who is on the Lord's side? You can imagine, this is a dramatic scene. Moses has come down with righteous indignation smashed the tablets, made them drink up the powder, and now he's looking around at these people, maybe two million in number, who have committed this great atrocity, and he says, listen up, who's on the Lord's side? And so the Levites come and gather to him. Now, perhaps this was a bit of family loyalty. You remember that Moses was from the tribe of Levi, so maybe they said, okay, Moses, you know, Aaron... He's made a, a royal mess of this, but we're with you, Moses. We're on your side, family and family. Now, for whatever reason they did so, now their profession of loyalty was going to be put to the test because it wasn't just that they could come forward and Moses would say, all right, all of you, you get a medal. Well done. You, you're on the Lord's side. Now he says, I got a job for you. And these people who had multiple times, the text tells us in the earlier chapters, had survived the sword of Pharaoh. Now they would not survive the sword of their own brothers. They had to go through the camp and kill family, friends, neighbors. You see that verse 27. It's very dramatic. And each of you kill his brother, his companion, his neighbor. Maybe this is what Jesus had in mind when he said in the Gospels, I have come not to bring peace, but to bring division. I have come to set father against son and father-in-law against son-in-law and mother against daughter and 
brother against brother and sister against sister. Whoever loves father or mother or son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. That's a hard saying from Jesus. Maybe he had this sort of episode in mind. One of the hardest things in all the world. You might say, I can love Jesus more than a golden calf. I love Jesus more than my house. What if, what if he calls you as he does? to love and serve and follow Him even more than you are inclined to love and serve and lay down your life for your family. I remember a few years ago hearing about an individual, I won't give specifics of the story, but this person, what it seemed to me, was, was caving on a particular issue, particularly controversial issue in our day, in our culture, and in the church. And when I asked this person um, secondhand, I said, well, this person who seems to be caving on this issue, I said, well, is his son's position and his grandson's choices relative to this issue, does this have anything to do with this esteemed person's capitulation on the issue? And the person said to me in response, with a bit of sadness but a lot of wisdom, I'm afraid that blood is thicker than theology. And it's true for many of us that came to it. You have what you know the Bible says, what you've said you believe. And then, but then when it comes down to this is going to cost something with my kids, my spouse, with my grandkids. It often ends up that blood is thicker than theology. But not so with these Levites. They said, if that's what you call us to do, so be it. They went from gate to gate throughout the camp. They killed 3,000. And you may think 3,000, but we ought to be thinking only 3,000 out of perhaps 2 million people. We don't know exactly why it was only 3,000, but there must have been some mechanism to recognize who was deserving of death in this instant and who wasn't. Perhaps th these were the ones who held their ground and showed no, no sort of remorse over their actions. Most commentators think in some way these people were highlighted as the instigators, as the ringleaders, perhaps those heads of each clans and, and families and households who had led the people. But the picture is of the Levites going through from the front of the camp to the back with the sword and putting to death their relatives, their countrymen, their friends, their neighbors. The entire nation was at fault, but at least these instigators, these ringleaders would be put to death. They had escaped the sword of Pharaoh, but they couldn't escape the sword of their own kin. And it may seem to us to be a gross exaggeration of their crimes, just a little idolatry, but that's not how the Lord sees it. A passage like this reorients us to the, to the horror of sin because we come to a passage like this and you either can assert your own human autonomy and say, I don't, I don't like a God like this, a God who views sin in such stark terms, a God who would punish sin like this. I don't want a God like this. Or you can say, I have to listen to the Bible. My theology is, is going to be better than my own instincts. And the Word tells me that sin is so heinous that it's deserving of punishment even like this, we tend to think that we deserve so little. 
that our sins are very light, that our infractions are minor, that these sort of uh, threatenings are such an exaggeration. I was going on a run on Friday, and I was running down Hazlitt, and I was on the sidewalk, not on the road, on the sidewalk. And you know you run on the sidewalk, and you've got to go by side streets, and as often happens, you've got to look out because cars are coming. They don't always... So this car was coming, and I'm running, you know, blisteringly fast, probably. <laughs> and uh, I, see the, I see the car, and I'm, you know, calculating. I'm going to maybe run behind him if he doesn't see me coming. But he, he slams on the brakes, and he stops and sort of screeches. And so I see, and I'm not right in front of him, but I'm just coming. So he stops, and I run in front of him, and I give him, you know, the, the runner sort of wave, thanks for sparing my life and all, <clears throat> and I get by, and I am not kidding. He rolls down the window. Older gentleman, just don't get like this older gentleman. He yells at me, next time I'll hit you. <laughs> so I thought two things. One, run faster. <laughs> two, this is going to end up in the sermon somewhere. I'm running, running. That's a bit extreme, a bit of an exaggerated response for my crime that was no crime at all. And some of us can feel that way as if God is just cranky old man having a bad day rolls down. Next time I'll kill you. I didn't do anything. That's not what this is like. No, this is like at all. They've rebelled against a God who saved them of his own sovereign, free grace and mercy. Verse 32, Moses tries again to intercede. He's already stayed the hand of God once, but now he's, but, but, but the sin hasn't been paid for. God has just agreed, I won't wipe them all out, but now they haven't been forgiven. Moses says, Lord, might I be able to offer myself for their sakes? Now, there's some debate when Moses says, please blot me out of your book. Is he just saying, well, if you're going to kill them all, you have to kill me? Perhaps. So it, it, it seems more like he is offering himself as some kind of substitute. Would you forgive them? But if you cannot just forgive them, might I offer myself? Might I be blotted out of their book instead of my countrymen. This is a common phrase uh, in, in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. It was common in the ancient world. The book, kings would keep a written record, a kind of census, just like we do. And, and they would keep a record for purposes of taxation and military duty and property. And when somebody died, you would blot them out. What you do, you get a, you don't have an eraser, you don't press delete, but you would blot them out of the book. There are at least two different kinds of book, books like this in the Old and the New Testament. There's, there's, there's a book that refers to just life, and then there's a book that refers to eternal life. And you can make an argument either way, which one Moses is talking about here. Blot them out of your eternal book or, or in my life so that you don't end theirs. But in both cases, the, the impetus really is the same. Moses is moved that he might make a substitute for his people. Psalm 69, 28, let them be blotted out of the book of the living. Let them not be enrolled 
among the righteous. May I be removed from the enrollment of the righteous that they might live. And God says, no. Each person will pay for his sin, at least with you, Moses. They will be blotted out of my book. In other words, God is saying, no, you can't pay for it, Moses, but I'll find a way. He says in verse 34, I want you to go. You're going to bring them to the promised land. My angel will go with you, so I'm not wiping them out. There's a stroke of mercy, but I will yet visit their sin upon them. You can argue what this is, whether it happens in verse 35, and that's the visitation. I tend to think that the language of verse 34 is more dramatic than that, and what he's referring to are all of the covenant curses that will be stipulated as a part of the Mosaic law later in the Pentateuch, and those covenant curses that would eventually fall upon Israel when they reject God again and again and again, and they are cast out of the land and sent into exile in Babylon. God says, to be continued. But for now, verse 35, He sends a plague, some sort of withering disease or illness. Perhaps more people died. Maybe they just got sick. We don't know. But He sends a plague. In other words, they're to recognize we deserve now what Israel got because, of course, where were the plagues? We saw ten of them with Egypt. There God was ruling and reigning for His people, and now He extends His might against His people. This was a small-scale warning of a greater visitation that would come. Moses has been so effective, but his plea in verse 32 will not work. You can do anything for love, but you can't do And he knows that it may not work. He says, perhaps, verse 30, you see that? Perhaps I can make atonement. This is why I think he's he's offering his life for theirs. I'm going to go up the mountain, and I have an idea. I've seen an altar. I know about the blood of the covenant. I have an idea. They've broken the covenant that they swore to uphold. This covenant that was ratified in blood, that's why their blood is being called to account when they broke it. And Moses said, perhaps my blood can suffice for theirs. And the Lord says, no. And so we are left wondering, when will enough be enough? When will the plagues stop? We see what a serious sin this is, and we see the great holiness of God. Moses intercedes, okay, I won't wipe them out. And then he smashes the tablets, he grounds up the calf, he rebukes Aaron. The Levites kill 3,000. The Lord warns them of a judgment to come. He sends a plague upon them. He says, I will blot them out, and there may yet be more to come. We're left saying, when, how, if not Moses, who? So you can imagine, or you ought to imagine, what good news it was as Jesus hung there on the cross and said those famous words, 
it is finished. Enough. Do you see how this graphic story of sin and judgment in Exodus 32 has everything to do with the good news of Easter? From Good Friday to Sunday of Holy Week, Jesus accomplished what Moses never could. And you can't, and I can't, and the most loving, wonderful person in your life can't. Romans 4.25, Paul tells us that Jesus, our Lord, was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Raised for our justification. Which tells us that in the empty tomb, justice has been satisfied so that we might be justified. Let me give you an illustration, which I think I gave several years ago. You imagine that you're one of six boys in your family. And one day, five of you sneak out of your rooms, you ride your bikes to the store, or if you've got older kids, you can say, you know, one of you drives off to the store, and you steal some fireworks, some lighters, some matches, and you go back home, and you start blowing stuff up. Now, not being the brightest children in the home, you do this in the driveway while mom and dad are inside. And soon enough, they hear the loud blasting. They see the pyrotechnic display, and they come outside, and the five of you instantly know you are in big trouble. And just then, the sixth brother, your older brother, comes out. He wasn't with you in the crime. He was up, you know, doing geometry and reading Dostoevsky. And, you know, he was just doing, ah, that older brother. And he comes out, probably reading Crime and Punishment or something. And he comes out and he says, Mom, Dad, because they're just fuming. He says, could I take what they deserved? Could I take their punishment? Because Mom and Dad are ready to just, you know, banish them to their rooms for all time. Come out when you're 25. And the older brother says, could I do it? And sure enough, mom and dad say, yes. And so they send big brother to his room, and the five of you who are literally guilty as sin for stealing, for blowing things up, for violating all manner of laws against your parents, you wonder, is this little switcheroo going to work? And as long as the older brother is in his room and that door is closed, you think, I don't know. Is this legit? Can this really happen? Can he really be punished and we get to go free? And time goes and time goes and time goes. And then you hear the creak and the door indeed opens. And dad says to big brother, you're free to go. And he leaves. And those five criminals watching and waiting to see what happens in that room now know they have new life. Because what does the empty room indicate? It indicates the satisfaction of parental justice. 
the same way, the empty tomb on Easter morning signals the vindication of Christ from the curse of the law and the declaration of free pardon for all those who belong to Christ. The captive, the substitute, the atoning sacrifice has gone free. So here's what we must understand from this passage in Exodus 32 and from the good news of Easter morning. We are saved not by the removal of justice. You hear that? We are not saved by the removal of justice. We are saved by the satisfaction of justice. It's easy for people to think that the cross is where love conquered holiness. It's easy for people to think we're saved because God loves us so much. He just said, you know what? All those things about the law, about the curse, about death, about punishment, about plagues, forget about it, okay? I love you too much to do any of that, all right? So just none of it matters anymore. But that's not how justification works. That's not what we celebrate in the empty tomb. We are not justified because God's mercy somehow eliminated God's justice. We are justified because in divine mercy, God sent His Son to the cross to satisfy divine justice. And the resurrection, therefore, is the divine declaration for all the world to hear that there is nothing left to pay, nothing left to pay for your sins. You say, well, you know, you're a pastor and you probably just have little like normal sins. Well, how would you know? We all have extremely big normal sins. They're all normal. They're all big. And they all need an atoning sacrifice. And Christ is enough. There's nothing else. You don't have to, you know, sort of make yourself really miserable. You don't have to make your kids pay for it. You don't have to make your whole life a sort of summons to divine judgment for it. Nothing left to pay. Nothing left to pay. That's the declaration of the empty tomb. Listen to Acts 2.24. Listen to Acts 2.24. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Not possible. Why was it impossible for Jesus to remain dead? There was no way. We think of, well, the resurrection is such a great miracle, and it is a miracle, but it was impossible that he would stay dead. Why? Is it because God's more powerful than death and the devil? Well, that's true. But there's another reason. The grave could not hold the Son of God because it had no claim upon Him. The wages of sin is death. When sin is paid for, there is no longer an obligation to pay the wages of sin, which is death. Charles Hodge puts it this way, our sins were the judicial ground of the sufferings of Christ. That is, Christ, in our stead, in a manner of speaking, deserved to die so that they were a satisfaction of justice. And His righteousness is the judicial ground of our acceptance with God so that 
Our pardon is an act of justice. Think about that. Our justification, the resurrection tells us, is no legal fiction. It's not as if God just said, you know what, I had a whole set of rules, a whole set of laws, and I'm just going to remove those. We're going to erase those. They don't matter anymore. That's not what happened. Why does 1 John 1, 9 say that if you say you're without sin, you deceive yourself, the truth is not in us, but if you confess your sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. Why not faithful and merciful? That's what we think. He is faithful and loving. He's faithful and gracious, but it says He's faithful and just. It is an act of justice for God to forgive you if you belong to Christ because Christ paid for it all. I believe many of us have not begun to grasp just how good the good news is, just how secure our salvation is, just how completely and unalterably justified we are through faith in Christ. God did not set aside the law in saving you. He fulfilled it. Christ bore the curse of the law so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Justice is shot through the entire plan of redemption. People go to hell because God is just and people go to heaven because God is just. Because our sins were counted to Christ, He deserved to die. And because His life and death are counted to us, we deserve to live. We're not saved because God waves a magic wand and decides to suddenly overlook your faults. He has not overlooked the smallest speck of your sin or my sin. He demands justice for all of our iniquities. He demands justice for every last lustful look, every little proud thought, every spiteful word on your tongue, every minuscule moment of pride. He demands justice for all of it. And the resurrection of the crucified Son of Man tells us that all those demands of justice have been met. No more to be continued. We would have been there around the golden calf, throwing in our gold, having our party, singing our songs, committing our idolatry. We would have been there to see Moses smash the tablets and ground up the calf. And we would have been there wondering, will I be struck through by the Levites? Will I live to see another day? Will this plague get me? What does it mean the Lord will visit us one day? What does it mean that I deserve to be blotted out of His book? The miracle of the resurrection not simply that God did the impossible by bringing Jesus back to life. The miracle of the resurrection is that for Jesus, it was impossible to stay dead. The resurrection is not, friends, it is not a sentimental story about never giving up, about the possibility of good coming from evil. It's not, first of all, a story about how suffering can be sanctified or about how Jesus suffered for humanity so we can suffer for humanity. Holy Week is not mainly a story about a good man who died a sad death and, and he comes back so we can hope. The cross is about an atoning sacrifice for sin, about doing what Moses 
could not do. What you and I and our parents and our heroes could never do. The resurrection is the loud final declaration that Jesus is enough to atone for your sins. Jesus is enough to reconcile you to God. Jesus is enough to present you holy in God's presence. Jesus is enough to free you from the law and its demands. Jesus is enough to assure you now and forevermore that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It will be counted to us as righteousness when we believe in the one who raised Jesus from the dead. For the sake of rebellious idolaters, the blessed one was blotted out and brought back to life. So come to him. Believe in him. Run to him. Worship Him and be raised with Him that we might enter and live in the promised land that goes on forever and ever, world without end. Amen. Let's pray. We thank you for such good news on this Easter morning. News that is no less true on Monday morning or any morning for as long as you give us life. And from thereafter, it will be true for all the ages of heaven as we gather around the throne to sing your praise. For you are worthy. We worship you, our risen Christ. In whose name we pray. Amen.